turn initially to the book of Luke, there's a handful of passages we're going to be looking at. This is one of those mornings that, of course, you're welcome to open your digital device, and, and we, of course, we always encourage you to open the scriptures, but if you have the notes, all of the scripture references that we'll be reading are contained there in the notes. Last week, I talked about our uh, kind of our renewed mission and vision statement. That, that our vision is to be a community so rooted in God's love that we are renewing the understanding and experience of Christianity in our generation. And the way that we want to do that is to equip people to be uh, true to Christ, to be kind to all people, and to be the body of Christ in our community and beyond. And we built that mission around uh, three values. And if you want to look more of those, we kind of took some inspiration from both the teachings of Paul and Jesus. But our scripture references that scripture in uh, Micah that many of us are familiar for as our inspiration for constructing the, that statement. And of course, the values that we spoke of uh, that we talk about a lot at Christ Community Church are our three C values, which is uh, community, uh, compassion, and communion, not necessarily in that order. Uh, this morning, I want to talk a little bit about communion. I try to do this every year or every other year just to kind of revisit the idea and revisit the practice. Uh, one, it's just healthy to remember why we do something that we do on a routine basis because that kind of infuses it with thoughtfulness and meaning whenever we're engaging with it. But secondly, because we are a diverse interdenominational community, we come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And so we all have a little bit of a aw different awareness and understanding teaching that we received about communion. Now, of course, when we talk about communion as a value, we are not talking about one particular act or ritual. We are talking about the orientation of our life being lived in a practical rhythm that flows out of our deep connection and union with God through Christ that comes out of a deep abiding awareness that the living Christ dwells in us as the hope of glory, but that means that with our mind and with our body, we want to engage and connect with the beauty and the reality of that union so that it informs who we are and what we do. And so we're talking about a much larger value than any one particular act. We're talking about an orientation of our lives where we understand that the primary goal is if we are choosing to be a person of faith is to live life in such a way that it flows out of a very real, deep, and intimate connection and consciousness of the presence of God in our lives and in our hearts. And throughout the Christian tradition, there have been many different streams of Christianity that have cultivated practices that empower us to live with that kind of focus and intention. And so it's, what, it's, it's, it's an area of discipline that we would just simply call spiritual formation in hopes that that's kind of a generic word that covers the different ways that all streams of Christianity may have talked about it. Maybe they talked about spiritual direction. Maybe they talked about uh, 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 discipleship. Maybe they talked about uh, uh, quiet times and things of that nature. But we do recognize that there are practices in place that that Christians all since the beginning of the inception of our understanding of faith have cultivated these practices that allow us to engage in very focused and proactive ways. When we talk about the value of communion, we are going this morning to be specifically talking about a practice for 
For us, it is a weekly practice, but I know some of you all, it's more than a weekly practice. Some of you, because it's become a weekly practice, it is also a practice that you pursue during the week. And some of you as individuals during your times of prayer, quiet time, have incorporated this practice on a more regular basis. And so I wanna talk to you a little bit about it, about our understanding and why we are prioritizing it as well as mention a logistical shift that we are going to be making in our services. So let me get the logistical shift out of the way because you thinkers won't hear anything I say because you just want the details of what's gonna be expected. So let's get that out of the way. It's really not that big of a deal. For a time, we, we were ending our services with, the, with the, the entire body coming through and taking communion. Of course, that started getting uh, uh, challenging with uh, different flu viruses and then COVID and had to shift the way we were doing things and so forth. And then we went into a season where we wanted to experiment with maybe uh, having prayer service available uh, a little bit longer during the service. And there were very various things that we've been experimenting with the past year, as well as listening to feedback from people who are experiencing them. And so we are gonna still have our prayer ministry. It's just our prayer ministry will be available for uh, uh, after the service. And essentially, even when we made the shift, most prayer ministry took place toward the end or right after the service anyway. So we're just acknowledging that logistical reality and we're gonna return to, rather than having communion on the sides, every week we will return to gathering together and ending our services with the, the body taking communion together. So that's the logistical shift. It's nothing new. We're just kind of go back to a model because it seemed to be working and, and, and filling needs uh, that, that we wanna continue to pursue. So, uh, but, but the why, we're gonna talk about, you know, the what is communion, why is communion, and then there is one or two questions that I wanna take a moment to answer from the scriptures because there is a diverse um, approach to explaining uh, the meaning of some of these passages, and I just wanna share with you our understanding. It doesn't mean you have to leave here agreeing with me or abandoning one thought and taking mine, but I just ask you to consider it among the conversation that takes place in your head. So, uh, first of all, let's start with communion, communion the practice. Where in Scripture does this originate, and why, why do we want to prioritize it? Well, a couple of different places. We're going to look at Luke 22, verse 14, and then down through 19 through 20. And then again, we want to look at the reiteration of this scenario in the writings of Paul that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So here we are, Luke 22. And this is the, uh, the moment, the, what we call it the Last Supper because it's the final meal that Jesus shares with his disciples before he is arrested and executed. And so he gathers with them and uh, at the end of the meal throughout the night, after he has served them with the basin and the towel, uh, he says this, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, uh, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
the new covenant in my blood. So a couple of words there. He's there to eat the Passover meal, and you can dive into the history of Passover and the way it informs our understanding of communion sometime this afternoon if you have access to the Google. Uh, or you can schedule a time to have coffee and, coffee and we'll talk about it. We're not going to do that this morning. But what I do want you to see is the language here. He, it, it emphasizes that he broke the bread and said, this is my body, emphasizing the sacrificial nature of what was about to take place. He then again, when he says this word pour out, it would have elicited in the minds of his audience the idea of sacrifice because one of the sacrifices, uh, sac sacrificial rituals in ancient Israel was offering that is offered and then poured out upon the ground. And so, so this pouring out and this breaking is this image of sacrifice that they would have been familiar with. Then after the death and resurrection and the establishment of the first new converts, and as the churches began to organize both large gatherings in the temple up until 70 AD when that temple was destroyed, they would gather in the temple, but they would also gather in homes, and they had certain worship practices that began to evolve, and one of those practices certainly was this idea that we're talking about this morning of communion. Probably obviously happened a little different. They didn't have big uh, buildings like this and big churches like this, and they did not <laughs> utilize little individualistic cups and pieces of bread. That's a distinctly American um, uh, distinction, uh, 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 practice that, that I have opinions about, but I'm not going to go off on rants this morning, this early in the sermon. I'll save those for later. Where page three, it says in the corner, rant now. So we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but so, so anyway, that's how the, how, how the uh, uh, practice has come down for us. But they did have this practice. Oftentimes, it was, it was in conjunction with a meal, kind of the original church potluck, was which called a love feast, which I think would be weird today if we advertised that. Uh, but nonetheless, it's the same kind of idea where they'd have this meal together and they would celebrate communion. And in some scholars tell us it was likely that they celebrated maybe one part of the communion, maybe the breaking of the bread uh, before dinner, and then they had their meal together. And at the end, they poured their last cup of wine and, and, uh, and then celebrated the closing of communion, which was the celebration of the blood of the new covenant. And so Paul then repeats his instruction to the churches in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, and you'll see it's almost, the wording is very similar to that found in Luke. And, um, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So these are the two references from the New Testament that we draw our instruction from. Here are a few terms and titles. I'm just going to go through this quickly because depending on your, 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 your background, uh, one of them may be more familiar than the other three. Uh, 
You may have grown up where it was called the Lord's Supper. I remember when I first came to church here, Tim's background, a previous pastor, they called it the Lord's Supper. And, and we would advertise Communion Sunday with a little LS that I was always confused by the first year or two that I was here till it finally dawned on me, oh, that stands for Lord's Supper. So you may have heard it, the Lord's Supper. And why do we call it this? Because it came about at the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples before he was arrested. So referring to the Lord's Supper reminds us of the Jesus, of the meal that Jesus uh, uh, shared with his disciples and the invitation for us to dine with him as well. Because dining analogy speaks to the inward, uh, uh, intuitive, spiritual uh, communion and intimacy with God that we're intended to experience. And that is illustrated by the intimacy of a shared meal. So the Lord's Supper. So you might say, you might hear me say something like, we're time to end our service. We're going to come before the table of the Lord. That's kind of a reference. It's a, it's a reference, not that we're going to have, you know, a big meal with fried chicken and dressing and those sorts of things, but it's to remember that what this is about is the fact that the living Christ is the source of our spiritual sustenance. And so ingesting the elements is a reminder of the deep intimate connection that we have with God through the presence of Jesus Christ. So that's why we refer to it as the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. Some of you may have come from traditions where you're more familiar with hearing the word communion. Communion is something I, 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 that, that I was probably most familiar with. That's how I remember this meal being described as communion. It comes from the Greek word koinonia. And it just reminds us that in communion, we commune or share in the death and the risen life of our Lord. But when I say we, I mean that although you are participating as an individual, and certainly you are acknowledging your individual participation in that death and resurrection, we are remembering that we do this when we gather to worship collectively because our redemption is not an individual practice, it's a collective reality. This is why the New Testament letters, even though they say you, that you almost is always plural because these letters are not simply written to one individual, but to a community of individuals with the exception of maybe one or two of the letters. Uh, and even those, though, were understood to be read among the other churches. And so we we recognize we do this together. That's why, although I appreciated having the time where anyone could go to the side and take communion individual as an individual, which I think is great, and we'll do some of that here in our future, I still there is something about the unity of the, the, the symbol of ending our worship service as we all collectively move forward to gather at the Lord's t table. In, in, in my sense, some people say, why do you not do altar calls? Well, in a sense, that is our altar call because it's a, it's a recognition that both believer and unbeliever alike need to practice regularly coming to the Lord. And, and, and that's not something we outgrow because we become a Christian and we learn some theology. I mean, the whole heart of our theology is our need to be sustained by the grace of God and the life of the living Christ. And therefore, we weekly want to remind ourselves to come to the Lord. And so we'll talk about coming to be nourished at the Lord's table. Or you may be from a tradition that used the word Eucharist. Eucharist is one that has become one of my favorite ways of, of referring to the Lord's Supper or communion simply because the Eucharist reminds us, of, reminds us of the attitude of humility and thanksgiving that we're supposed to bring to the Lord's table. Eucharist simply comes from the Greek word that means thank you. 
Why did it get referred to the Eucharist? It's because, if you'll recall, in the, in the passages that we just looked at, what is the first thing that Jesus does before he serves the bread and the wine? You guys remember? He gives thanks. And so it's an emphasis on the thanksgiving that's offered by Christ, even at the top of serving that meal. And so Eucharist became the, the name for this particular practice. We are thanking God for what he has done through Jesus, just as Jesus gave thanks before serving the bread and wine. And finally, if you are uh, from a more of a Catholic background, you may be more familiar with the communion service being referred to as mass. And I have come, even though I wasn't raised Catholic, I have personally benefited quite a bit by Catholic devotional writers of the past. And uh, I, I am probably a little bit more ignorant of a Catholic theology, but I have definitely internalized a lot of the teaching of Catholic spirituality throughout various seasons of my life. And so this word mass comes from the Latin that simply means go, you are sent out. And I really like that. And I really like ending the services this way. So it's a little bit of our hat tip to that tradition, to be honest, because it crescendoed with communion because then you were prepared to then be commissioned to be sent out from the gathering. Sending eventually became the ending of the Holy Communion service. Thus, it was referred to as mass. So those are the titles that we work with, and we might use them interchangeably as we refer to communion. So the, the first real quick question, uh, and you'll have, the, you see the scripture references, and in other sermons, I've gone into this more. I'm not gonna do that this morning. I'm gonna give a really simple answer, but I wanted to mention that I've explained it before, and the scripture references are there, so I don't sound like a little smart aleck. But here's my answer. Why do we celebrate Eucharist every week? Because Jesus commanded it, and the early church practiced it. There, that's just, it's not... It's not more complicated than that. It has been a normal part of Christian worship services all throughout our traditions. And, and the reason why we do it every week is because that has been the tradition of the church. And Jesus didn't give parameters about it. He just said, every time you eat that bread and every time you drink the wine, do it in remembrance of him. So a weekly part of our worship services seems like it will be um, uh, appropriate. Now, I want to gently address a question because people will say, um, but when I do things every week, then they become meaningless to me. And I just want to say that is a problem with your heart, not with the actual ritual. And I don't mean to sound harsh with that, but I just mean if that's what you're struggling with, that is about a personal renewal of investing, uh, uh, bringing an attitude of affirmation and thanksgiving and, and your need for grace to the Lord's table. I understand that things can become ritualistic, but when things become ritualistic, that has to do with the participant, not with the ritual itself. The ritual can be very much something that's a living part of your, of, of your spiritual rhythm, but it, it is dependent a little bit on the focus that you bring whenever we come to the Lord's table. So, so, so we do that every week. Um, we also want to create, create a re weekly practice that reminds us that we're forgiven and reconciled people who are called to share our forgiveness and reconciliation with others. Hebrews 10.10, 10, and by that we all have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ, say it with me, once for, once for all. Now, the one I want to emphasize, and I have not emphasized in the past when we've gone over this topic, is number three, because we want to celebrate and renew our hope 
in the reality of our participation in the new covenant that God has made with humanity. We want to celebrate and renew our hope in the reality of our participation in the new covenant that God has made with humanity. We're gonna look at a few scriptures because I want you to see where this has always been the intent from the very beginning. We see the promise of new covenant does not begin in the new covenant scriptures. It begins in the context of the old covenant scriptures. For some reason, it has been controversial to simply acknowledge the fact that there was an old covenant that was fulfilled and made obsolete and there was an establishment of a new covenant in Christ. But I want you to see that that's not just clever thinking. These are ideas that are taken right out of the scriptures themselves. This has always been the intention and it is a mistake when believers of the new covenant then confuse a new covenant spirituality with the rituals, rules, and practices of an old covenant spirituality and try to blend the two and there creates some confusion. Now, is it wrong to do that? No, it's not wrong to do that as long as you understand the context. There are lots of things that I do in my personal communion time that are contemporary. Some things that have been part of the church since it was the Christian church uh, 2,000 years ago, and some things that come from ancient Judaistic practices like the recitation of the Psalms. So I blend all of those. I'm not saying they're off, uh, they're off limits, but we do need to understand the significance of what it means that the old covenant was complete and made obsolete to give room to this new covenant that had been prophesied. And it was the hope that the ancient Jews had placed uh, uh, their faith in, even if they didn't completely understand the totality of it. But the new covenant is nothing less than an enforcement of the promise that was made before the old covenant agreement. It goes all the way back to Genesis and it begins with not a Jew nor a Christian, but with a pagan named Abram. And when that pagan named Abram is chosen and called out by God, he, this is the promise that he says, through you, every family of the earth will be blessed. Well, this is the reality that comes to fruition as we understand the new covenant. So let's take a look at some of these passages. And I want to spend just a few minutes focusing on reading them because I want our discussions, whether we are affirming of this idea or we're challenged by this idea, to recognize this is not an idea that's come from some new contemporary teacher. These are ideas that we have to wrestle with because they're in the scripture. That's what matters. So Ezekiel eleven nineteen, he promises this. I will give them integrity of heart and put a new spirit within them. Everyone say within. Within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh. Again, it's referenced in Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart. Everyone say new heart. Sorry, I'm gonna do this a little bit this morning. And put a new spirit new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You see, I'm, I'm really, I want to take time to emphasize this. This is very important. The beautiful revelation of the new covenant is that God has given you a new heart, written his laws within you, and you can trust your heart. That is where the spirit speaks and bears witness to the truth of God, in addition to tradition, community, and the scriptures. I will give you a new heart. Jeremiah 31, 33. 
Instead, this is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them. Everyone say within them. Within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then you have a repeat of these Old Testament promises put in uh, by the uh, whatever man or woman wrote the book of Hebrews. We're not entirely sure, but this is what they said in, in chapter eight, verses 10 through 13. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone, everyone say everyone, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. And I just want to emphasize that last statement was not made by Artie. There's a 13 in front of it. It's what the scriptures are saying about the ending and closing and the transition of the old covenant to the new covenant. So, one of the most important reasons that I have come to appreciate about a regular practice of communion, for me it's not necessarily weekly, it might come take place throughout the week as well, is that one of the things in this season of my life that I'm very cognizant of is my joy that I've been invited to participate in this new reconciliation of humanity with God in which the Spirit has been faithful to his promises that even though I may look at my life and still see some of the habits and some, still see some of the toxicity of my unrenewed mind and therefore I'm thinking that there is not hope for me, nonetheless I stand on the truth of the faithfulness of God's promises that he has indeed given me a new heart, given me a renewed spirit, written his laws on my heart and as I in humility reach for him, the Spirit will be faithful to lead me into a deep connection with that inner reality Reality so that it can be the basis of the life that I live as it manifests the fruit of new covenant reconciliation in all of my relationships and in all of my decisions. And it doesn't happen overnight, but I can see that it is happening, that it is progressively happening, that those darkness, whether you want to call them tendencies, neuroses, or demons, I honestly don't care what you call them. What I do know is this, the Holy Spirit is is, is very faithfully shining lights in the dark places of my heart where those things try to resign. And when the light hits that darkness, the darkness flees because it has no choice. And when the darkness flees, it no longer is a part of the narrative between my ears. And therefore it is no longer the taskmaster that is demanding certain behavior of me. I am free from beginning to end because in part, there's space in my life to remember I am not participating in religion in the way it used to be understood. I am participating in a renewal of my inner real connection with God. And the authority for leading me in that direction comes from within, not externally. Because no longer is it about the experts who interpret the laws that are written externally, but is about learning in humility to walk into spirit and to respond to the laws that have been written on my heart.
And I don't know about you, but that leaves me with a deep sense of hope and security for the faithfulness of God in the future seasons of my life. And so we want to remember that, that this new covenant is based on some promises. Your sins are forgiven. So even though you still sin and you're tempted to define yourself from that behavior, this table reminds us every single week that shame will not be the primary energy from which I build my identity. Grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation with God will be the primary forces that, 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 that direct my cultivation of my understanding of who I am. And so that's why we come and we celebrate weekly that the sins that we are remembering are remembered by him no more. And I don't know about you, but I need at minimum a weekly reminder of that. Oftentimes I need it a lot more than that. And so I hope that these ideas encourage your heart and imagination as you come to the table of the Lord. Now, the second thing I want to address because of the way that I see this, it grieves me the way that this has seemingly, in my opinion, been abused in the lives of other people to create this very strange picture of God that doesn't seem to look very much like Jesus. And so, but we want to root and ground our convictions in our understanding of the scriptures and we want to take that seriously. We don't want it to just be on our personal sentiments or whatever's in fashion ideologically at the time. So let's address some of these questions. The main one being is this, what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? You'll be surprised at the number of stories that I've heard from people that they have been essentially emotionally abused by the way that this has been understood. It's been used to bully people. It's been used to take the celebration of the covenant of grace and introduce a new legalism that goes right down to the heart and shame of people and says some sh people should be welcome at the table and shun some people should be shunned from the table. I, I will tell you, even though we're going to look some scripture and theology, one of my favorite responses was among the whole staff when we were together talking about this because there have been moments in our community where certain people were offended by individuals who were allowed to take communion because there was a disagreement in their lifestyle choices or struggles with sin. And as we were talking about the, and, and I do understand there is a tension. There is a discussion that we need to have with grace and mercy. And if I come from a perspective that I've always been taught closed communion, I'm, and, and if, I, if I'm wrong, I need my friends to be patient with me and help me walk through that process intellectually, not just reject me or make fun of me or call me a legalist because I don't quite understand where they're coming from. But, but I, I just want to, 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 to mention this uh, because this idea of unworthy matter, there are people that have been told if their heart's not right when they take communion that God could kill them in a car accident this week. And they really live with that kind of fear. I mean, if God is handing out death sentences for coming up here when your heart's not fully in order, I'm not gonna take this anymore either. And I get paid to be good. Some of you are just good for nothing. But anyway, uh, so. 
<laughs> okay, back to it. So what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven through 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now that's very, very important, that phrase. We don't have a lot of time to get in exegetical and theological uh, uh, bunny trails today, but that's really important because what he is talking about is a deep self-generated judgment. It, it is not God standing above, peering into the heart and saying, ah, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. Oh, stomp, squash, he gets sick. Uh, oh no, you're gonna die, you're really unworthy, which is how people talk about this. It's really important that we recognize that this is an internal thing that's taking place in the heart, you're drink, that, 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 that he who does that drinks judgment on themselves. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. There it is right there. So this is what they say. Don't take communion in an unworthy manner or God could kill you. Now that's taking some liberties with the passage and it's also some taking some liberties about how we define unworthy manner. Typically we define it not by sins with which we struggle. We typically are more comfortable defining the shunning of the Lord's table to be reserved for sins that we don't really struggle with. It, other people's sins. And so, um, so let's think through what it means to take the Lord's, to take it in an unworthy manner. Anyway, some of you are weak and ill and some of you had died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not uh, be condemned along with the world. So even at the last statement, this 32, do you notice here, if there is anything of a concept of judgment to the Lord, it is not for the purpose of condemnation. That is what's extremely critical in understanding this. When the Lord judges, he does it for restorative purposes, not for condemnation for our purposes. Whole sermon in and of itself, but we don't have time for that uh, this morning. But I'd love to talk about it over a Reuben. So Paul's instructions are for participants to examine themselves, not for them to examine others. And unworthy manner, we do not need to speculate. This is the thing about this passage. We don't need to have debates on what it might or might not mean. But if you go to the Google and ask it, man, you're going to get all kinds of explanations of what this must mean. Look, I'm not a, I don't boast to be a scholar or a super smart man. But I think if we look at the text, we're going to find out what it means to, to uh, 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 understand what it means to take it in an unworthy manner. So when you go to your verse, note verse 27. What it says, and we quoted it, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Look at that little word, therefore, and let us ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, it means that these instructions are given concerning what has just been said. So let's look to the text for our clues as to what he might be talking about. Well, if we move up the, up the chapter a bit and we start in verse um, 17 instead of 27, here's what we will read. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. In other words, you're doing something wrong here and you need to be rebuked. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, 
I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's a fun little statement that would be fun to dive into a little bit, but we'll, we'll, we'll save that for another date. And on that date, we'll, have, we'll split everybody up into factions and we will declare which ones are the legitimate ones and which ones aren't. But anyway, uh, verse 20. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Again, listen, don't overread that, some of you, on the more, uh, uh, who have a little more liberty than the rest of us. Because you would think he would say, another gets drunk, and you shouldn't get drunk. But he says, don't get drunk at church, you've got a house. But so anyway, we'll, we'll just... We're not going to go too much into that one right now. <laughs> what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So let's look at the text. First of all, what we see is the Corinthians were participating in divisions among the body. Number two, when they gathered for the Lord's Supper, they ate a common meal in which the wealthier participants were indulging themselves and getting drunk and not sharing with those who were in need. Number three, their actions were humiliating those who had less and who went away hungry. Number four, Paul is rebuking the culture of pride and selfishness and neglect that the Corinthians had created in their gatherings. It's interesting when we look at this concept, um, oh man, I'm running out of time. I'll make it Reader's Digest. But it is interesting that whenever we interpret this, this idea of unworthy, uh, unworthy manner, most of the explanations I hear are almost always vertical morality exp explanations. In other words, if you're doing something that God doesn't like and you're not repenting, that's when you can take the wafer and the grape juice and get killed over it. That's kind of what kind of rolls out. But if you'll notice, look at the thrust in Paul's passage. What he is rebuking is their neglect of a horizontal morality is going on here. It is a not about they're doing something wrong so God's mad. It is God, Paul rebuking them because they are neglecting and they're sinning against the image of God in their neighbor. They are neglecting those who need food and drink and indulging it in themselves. So if we want to get closer to the unworthy manner, we have to understand the difference between thinking about a private vertical morality, which is easier to obey, or a public horizontal social morality that says I that my behavior toward others is the measure of my love for God. When my measure for my love of God is what I do in private, man, I'm pretty much God's best friend. You know, maybe Moses has a little something up on me. But when I measure my love for God as manifested in the way I treat the people around me, man, there's a little different report card that comes my way. But this is what Paul is referring to. 
It is about your awareness and how you're treating the other people that are in the gathering with you. Secondly, and this is a really important one, we can understand what Paul means by an unworthy manner from the instructions that he offers for correcting the situations. He doesn't say, go out and repent of sexual immorality, go out and repent of this sin, that sin, whatever your teaching may be. Look at what he says for the solution. It's in verse 33 and 34a. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that, you come to, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What's the answer to their dilemma? Wait for one another and eat at home. So, even if you disagreed with everything I said, here's what I would suggest to you. The text demands that whatever your explanation of unworthy manner is, that it ought to be able to be able to found, you're able, you should be able to find a solution to it by the instructions, be patient and wait for one another and eat at home. If you're coming up with a theory that will not be impacted by eating at home and waiting for one another, then it's likely you're thinking about something that Paul wasn't thinking about. Because in his mind, the dilemma is answered if you just eat at home and you wait for one another. So then this final question, which is connected to that one, should I refrain from celebrating the Eucharist if I am struggling with sin? Um, I, had, I had a long paper that was gonna take us 45 minutes to get through, but I decided to synthesize it. No. No. For one thing, I don't wanna be the only one up here taking communion, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, if that were the case, my friends, and some of you know this pretty easily, I also would not qualify to be taking communion this morning. No, that, that, that is not what the scripture is communicating. This table is for sinners who recognize their need for forgiveness. Here's the only reason to not to take communion. If your pride is so big, you no longer think you need to be sustained by the grace of God. That is the sin that will keep you from the communion table, but it's not because God is banishing you. It's because you're not coming to it in humility, recognizing how desperately you need the grace and mercy of God. And so, and so this table is for sinners who recognize their need for forgiveness, mercy, and new life. And please remember this, my friends. At his table, our Lord served at communion a doubter, a denier, and a betrayer. And every single one of those men gathered there did not have an evangelical theological understanding of communion. They didn't. That comes many, many years later. It wasn't hinged upon their understanding it perfectly or acting perfectly. It was whether or not they were willing to let Jesus serve them because the first step of a life of faith is to let love love you. If you can't do that, you will never be free to love God in return or to love your neighbor as yourself. It's gotta come in here first. So as we, get, as we stand and we get ready to take communion, this morning we will, we will essentially, logistically, what we will do is you'll come take the elements and then at that point you'll go back to your seat. The only thing that's different around the rest of our Sundays other than the first Sunday of the month you can go ahead and take that at your seat or with the tape people around.